You're listening to a podcast from Hicksville Cornerstone Church. For more information about the church, visit us at hickscc.org. That's H-I-X-C-C.org. Thanks for listening. We're going to be in Luke 24. If you want to cheat there in your Bibles, it's also there's uh, Bibles in your pews if you do not uh, have one this morning. I want to start with a question. Have you ever wanted something to happen so much that when it finally did happen, you didn't believe it? I love watching those uh, videos online of the soldiers that return home from war. Maybe you've seen those. Uh, Maybe you've seen it at a hockey game or a baseball game. I love those, right? And there's this moment where the reveal happens where the brother, the husband, the wife, the, the pa- parents suddenly burst forth into the room and they have to double take, right? Is this really happening? Is this taking place? And then they run and hug their loved one. I can imagine when V-Day took place at the end of World War II, many communities were very initially hesitant to the idea that the good news could actually be true. Could it really be that their loved ones would return from war? Could it really be that we would not have to? Maybe the rations might end. Could it really be good news? It was the same for many POWs and Holocaust survivors. Even as the troops approached their camps for liberation, many of them doubted their good fortune. About a month ago, I made a surprise for my kids. We said that, hey, we're going to take you to Great Wolf Lodge. And we told them this an hour before we started loading the cars. So even, an, even during that hour as we're throwing stuff into the cars like mad people, they're so excited, we're on our way. And about just outside Defiance, one of them looks at me and says, Dad, are we really going to Great Wolf Lodge? Doubt seems to be the default human position, doesn't it? Doubt seems to be the default human position. Even in the garden, when all was perfect, when mankind was innocent, when Adam and Eve were without sin, what was the tool that Satan used to tempt the first couple? Did God really say? Doubt. And when doubt takes hold of our lives, We carry it around like a sick pet, ashamed to let go of it. I doubt I'll ever get out of debt. I doubt I'll ever pay off my student loan. I doubt I'll ever find a spouse. I doubt my, my, my relationship with my parents will ever be good. I doubt that I can get a good job. I doubt that God really loves me. I doubt that I can have real peace. And God forbid we get to the place where we say, I doubt I could ever be happy. And we, are, we carry around doubt for so long that many of us become closed to joy and closed to hope. And this is where we find the disciples within the text of Scripture today. They have closed themselves off from the world. They're literally in hiding. They have closed themselves off from Scripture. They have closed their eyes from hope. They doubt what is right before their eyes. 
Maybe you're there today. Maybe this describes you too. That's okay, you're in good company, as we're going to see within the text of Scripture today. But my prayer is that you will have your heart opened as we open the Scriptures. The doubt will become faith. Turn with me to Luke 24. We're going to go through it, the three sections today piecemeal, uh, not in one long city. So feel free to see, hear the story as it unfolds before us. We're going to begin in Luke 24, 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful man and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb And they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to to them idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloth by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's look at the open tomb this morning in verses 1 through 12. The open tomb is where the story begins. Mary, Joanna, Mary, and the other woman make their way to their tomb to prepare the body. While the tomb was open, doubt immediately consumed their minds from understanding what was clear before them. Had someone stolen the body? Are we in the wrong place? Did we go to the wrong tomb? Then suddenly two angels appear and the two give testimony to what has taken place. Why do you seek the living among the dead? And it is when the angels speak that the women remember what, the, what Jesus had said. So they leave the tomb to go tell the rest what has taken place. But alas, the disciples don't believe them. They doubt their story. For the majority, their minds are so closed to the possibility that they don't even go examine it. It's only Peter and one other dude that runs to the tomb to see if what they said is indeed true. And I want you to notice a few things from this section. The first is the testimony of the angels. According to the law of Moses, two witnesses are required for something to be verified. And before the woman at the tomb, two angels stood. Well, it lists them as men. Well, how do we know they're angels? Well, from their appearance and from the reaction of the women. The dazzling apparel is the same words used to describe Jesus in the transfiguration in chapter 9. And the reaction to the men... uh, said that they radiated power. That's why they immediately dropped to their knees. Verse 23 also tells us that that was their interpretation. Here, we have messengers from heaven reminding the women 
of the messages from earth. They're going to repeat the same words of the three passion predictions in chapter 9, which contain two in chapter 18. Well, what are the passion predictions? These flow throughout Luke's gospel. This is what it is. That the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful man and be crucified and on the third day rise. It's the culmination of the book of Luke. The angels are saying the open tomb shouldn't be a surprise. The surprise should have been a closed tomb. So the angel's testimony opens their eyes to what was before them. Their doubt that someone might have taken the body is removed. Their doubt that they went to the wrong tomb is removed. All those doubts are cast aside, for they had faith in the words of the angels. And they had faith in the previous words of Jesus. And they run to tell their friends... Notice here as they continue, as we continue, that faith by biblical definition is not something in the absence of evidence. Faith is believing something in the presence of it. It is trusting the person making the statement. That's why it's the opposite of doubt. Doubt is not, doubt is not trusting the person making the statement. It has little to do with evidence and more to do with trust. So do you trust? Do you have faith? Or do you not trust? Do you doubt? The second thing that needs to be noted is this. It's the testimony of the women. Now there are four of them, okay? Double the amount of angels. Surely they can convince the other 11 of what they saw. But the 11 did not believe them. And I think it's clear for two reasons. First is that the 11 doubted. Everything that they had hoped for had come crashing down three days prior. The idea that Jesus had risen from the dead was simply too good to be true. They had been betrayed by their friends, betrayed by the crowds, and they had betrayed Jesus by abandoning him. Surely this can't be true. Surely the words of the women can't be trusted in light of everything else that has happened. Second, they were women. Now, before you stone me, okay, understand this. In the first century Jerusalem, this is first century Jerusalem, not me, okay? The testimony of women in court didn't count. It didn't count. Even the testimony of four women in court wouldn't count for anything. But this highlights two things. First, I think the reason that these four women were the first ones to see or hear the good news of their Lord Jesus Christ is they were the ones that didn't abandon Jesus at the cross. The disciples had. And so I think it was a gift to these four women. The second thing I want you to highlight, I want you to hi see highlighted, is the natural apologetic of this section. Apologetic is a defense of the faith. I don't think it was Luke's intent to speak to a 20th century audience, but nevertheless he does. You see, in the age of skepticism, we, we question sacred texts like this all the time. But this actually leads credence to the authenticity of the story. If Luke were going to make up a religion, if Luke were going to make up a story, then why on earth would he include it, would he make the witnesses people who would not have been believed in that day and age because of their gender? If you're going to kickstart a fake 
global movement, you appeal to global sensitivities. The only reason it makes sense that he includes this in the story is, well, because it actually happened. It's the only reason you include it. If you want to create a lie, you put people in place or actors in place that everyone actually believes. But he's trying to tell the truth. He's not trying to put one over our eyes. And if that testimony isn't good enough for you because they're women, so be it. That's on you. But the disciples were not open to truth. Just like many people today are not. They're filled with doubt. And we see this play out in the next section in the road to Emmaus. Emmaus. The road to Emmaus. We're going to start in uh, verse 13, move to 25. I love this story. Like, I'm sorry. I'm not going to. Well, I just love this story. Listen. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken you. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to a village to which they were going. He acted as if they were go- he was going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those that were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and appeared to Simon." Then they told what had happened on the road and how he, had known to, how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. We see the open scriptures here in verses 13 through 35. The road to Emmaus is only recorded in Luke's gospel, and I think it's one of the most beautiful stories in scripture. Much of it has to do with the mysterious nature of Jesus. We, as the readers, we know it's Jesus. We get the wink, wink that the, uh, that the author has given us, but we clearly know that the people who are with him on the road have no idea. The Lord holds back this knowledge for some unknown reason. 
But over the course of what must have been several hours, he reveals himself to them and then vanishes in a moment. And here are a couple things I don't want you to miss about this section. First is the boldness of the travelers. I think we tend to see them as buffoons, right? It's three blind mice that are walking around the clock hoping that they can find the cheese. How did they miss Jesus? But their boldness should not be missed. The travelers have no idea who this person is. He could be a member of the Sanhedrin. He could be a member of the religious elite, the same people that killed Jesus. But they immediately lay the blame for everything that has happened at their feet. They risk punishment and potential death by making these open claims about the rulers of their day. Let's not miss that they did not care what the consequences brought. The second thing I want you to notice is that the travelers were closed to the resurrection. Women told them what had occurred to them in the morning, closed to the resurrection. Others went to the tomb, they did not see Jesus, closed to the resurrection. In their minds, Jesus could have been standing right in front of them, had to be standing right in front of them for them to believe, which is ironic because he is standing right there in front of them and they still don't see it because they are closed to the testimony that's already been given, given to them. Well, what testimony am I talking about? The women? No. Peter? No. Jesus scolds them not for those things. He scolds them for not believing the prophets. And he, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus then proceeds to give the greatest sermon never recorded, at least not on this side of heaven, right? Like I hope when we get to heaven, there's like Christ tube or something like on DVD or VHS. I, I doubt there's VHS in heaven. That's facetious, right? But I hope there's something where we can look back and kind of see these moments, right? It's the greatest sermon never recorded. So Jesus opens the scriptures, the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the prophets, major and minor and Psalms, and points to the resurrection promised within those passages. And their hearts begin to burn, for they know what he speaks is true. But their eyes are not yet opened. They're still fools. Now, when I say fools, I don't mean that they're dumb. Please don't hear that. You see, the problem for the travelers was not their rationality. It was their hearts. Their hearts doubted because their hearts hurt. Their hearts doubted because their hearts hurt. For many people, this is their experience with Christianity. And this is the hurdle that they need to get over. That they need help. They need a bridge to walk in to find healing. The scriptures are clear that a sacrifice must be paid for our freedom. That freedom from death comes at the cost of a life. And it had to be the perfect life, the perfect sacrifice. The Jews were okay with a conquering king. They were not ready for a suffering one. But that is what Jesus offered. His life as ransom for the sake of many. So they invite him to stay the night since it was custom of that day. And as Jesus broke the bed, bread, which, think about it, would be weird for the guest to do. Typically, if you invite someone over, you pray for the meal, right? But he comes in, 
lips. And for some reason, he's blessing it. Let me break the bread. Let me bless it. And in that moment, their eyes are opened. The scales are removed. They see the Messiah for who he is. And in a twist, he disappears. And overcome with joy, they run the seven miles in the dark towards Jerusalem. Once fools, right? Once fools, then enlightened. They now run like fools in the dark. They find their friends and tell the good news. And then the same man that vanished appears in their midst. And this is what we see take place in the next section of the chapter. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you, shalom. But they were startled and frightened, and they thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet. That is, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? He upped the ante, right? Not only touch me, ghosts don't eat. True story. If any of you saw the classic in the 90s, Casper the Friendly Ghost. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. In that moment, their minds were open. As you can imagine, the sudden appearance of a man in a room probably freaked them out, right? If someone appeared right here out of thin air, we, you could all test it. I'm out, right? Like that's going to freak me out. But they immediately test him, right? Is it real? Is this Jesus? But what makes someone alive, right? Couldn't it just be a ghost as some of the cults argued in the second century? No, Jesus says, touch me and then takes the fish and eats it and affirms several things in this section that we must affirm today. First is that you got to open your Old Testament. Now, look, I know some of you could say, we are a people of the New Testament, Pastor. It's what we do. We're new, not old. That's for old people, right? We don't need the Old Testament. Look, no offense, but if it's good enough for Jesus and the disciples, it should probably be good enough for us too. And here's the beauty of it. The more you read the old, the more you understand the new. And ironically, the more you understand the new, the more you value and read the old. It's supposed to be an echo to, to, um, of the story. It all points to Jesus. The second thing we should do is he commands us to open our mouths. And he said to them, Thus it is written, 
that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. This is our message right here. Look, when people ask, who is Jesus? And our response is, well, he's just, he's a really good teacher. He's a really good prophet. He's a, he's a really, he's a darn good example. I went really Midwestern there. I apologize if that offended anybody, right? He might be all those things. But look at his words. He came to suffer and die, to conquer and rise, so that we might repent and be forgiven. And then we are moved to share the same message with others. He is the high priest. He is the true Passover lamb. He is the conqueror of death. He is the prophet of the Lord. He is the king that sits at the right hand of God on the throne, interceding on our behalf, orchestrating the things that come to pass. Jesus as a good teacher does not save. A savior does. Jesus as a good prophet does not save. A sacrifice does. Jesus as a good example does not save. The fulfillment of the law in the life of Jesus does. And if we take Jesus as anything less than what he claims to be, then we profane his name and we mock him with our very words. And worse... If we keep these things to ourselves, we disobey the very God we claim to follow. We wouldn't do this with any other group of people, right? If you, can you imagine being the fan of a winning sports team? I'm sorry, Browns fans. I'm sorry, Chicago Bears fans, right? Like, can you imagine being a fan of a winning sports team? And not like cheering them on on a regular, not like, oh, you see my team this weekend? 20 touchdowns. I love having Tom Brady as my quarterback. I'm just saying that, but we'll continue. It's great stuff. Can you imagine being a doctor who has access to life-saving medication and not prescribing it? Nah, it's okay. Can you imagine wanting to marry the most amazing person and then not telling your family and friends about it? Can you imagine being a Christian and not opening your mouth as Christ has commanded? Luke 24, 48. You are witnesses of these things. You are. You. He is speaking to the disciples here, but if you are in Christ, if your mind and heart has been opened to the truth and the testimony of Scripture, the testimony of the women at the tomb, the testimony of the many witnesses, the testimony of the Old Testament... And these words speak to you. But he does not ask you to do it alone. That's the beauty of it. He sends a helper, Luke 24, 49. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The last section asks you to open your heart. A messenger will be sent from heaven to fulfill the promises of God. Does verse 49 ring a bell to anybody? If you've read Luke, it's the same language used by the angel who appeared to Mary at the very beginning, the mother of Jesus at the beginning of Luke's gospel. The power from on high would bring her a baby in the womb. And Mary's response should be our response as well. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And while the Son of God dwelt within Mary... The union with the Son of God is offered also to us. 
If you are in Christ, Christ dwells within you. The Holy Spirit empowers you. We have a power of God within us that calls us to love and serve our world around us. And for those of us that know Jesus, we are to open our hearts to love our neighbors around us. For this is the way in which we display our love for God by being extensions of the kingdom in our community. I would encourage you to make steps to do that with greater boldness in the days ahead. And for those of you that might not know Jesus as Savior, who are in the same place of doubt as the women at the tomb, at the men on the road to Emmaus, I would ask you not to keep your doubt silent. I would ask you not to keep your doubt silent. The women had doubts at the tomb, and they were answered by a messenger. The men had doubts on the road to the Emmaus, and they were answered by a messenger. The disciples had doubts in the room, and they were answered by a messenger. It is Satan, I'm convinced of this, who would have you keep your doubts to yourself. The idea that you cannot wrestle with doubts within the church is straight from the pit of hell. This should be the most free place to wrestle with the things that we struggle with within the text of Scripture, to wrestle with Jesus, to wrestle with what Jesus has called us to do. This should be the most free place to do so. And we have to allow it to be. So if that's you, if you're wrestling with doubt, know that you have a home here. You don't got to have all the answers and have it together before you show up at church on Sunday. This should be a safe place. I ask that you open your hearts to find answers. Let me state the obvious. This can be really hard. This can be really hard. Before I came to Saving Faith, there was a time in my life when my heart was so closed to the possibility of resurrection. You could have given me an airtight case for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and I would have wanted nothing to do with it. Nothing. I've been there. Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you've faced disappointment in your life. Maybe you've faced death in your life. For me, that was the big hurdle. You doubt because, well, that's the human default setting, isn't it? But we don't want you to stay there. My prayer for you is to examine the evidence for the resurrection. The Lord does not hide it. Look, Jesus is one of four things. He's, he's liar, he's a lunatic, he's a legend, or he's Lord. He's either a liar, right? He said he was the son of God. He made all these crazy claims, and he knew full well that he wasn't. He's either a liar. He's either a lunatic. He made all these claims that he's the son of God. He blasphemed the name of the Lord. That's the reason they killed him, because he claimed he was equal to God. And he really believed it, and he wasn't. That's a lunatic. In our modern-day age of skepticism, what has been added is the idea of legend, right? Well, Jesus never really did exist. And while, you know, this is really popular on Internet chat boards, there is not one historian who has been published in a historical journal that holds to this belief because the evidence for the existence of Jesus is simply 
overwhelming. So he's not a legend. Then he might be exactly who he claimed to be. He is the Lord. And we have to make a decision for this because if he is indeed the Lord, it changes everything in our lives. Everything. Because he calls us to radical discipleship, radical life change by the power of his Holy Spirit. He is the Lord. He's the Lord over life and death, so much so that when we put our trust in him, when we put our faith in his work, when we believe in the work he did at the cross and the tomb, when we repent of our sin and trust in Jesus, we too are offered eternal life. You are offered that today if you are not a believer in Jesus. My prayer is that you would open your hearts to him, that it would not be closed, that you would invite the Holy Spirit to unite, you to, G- to unite Jesus to you. And may this day forevermore be marked as a day for your resurrection when you went from death to life and to life everlasting. Bow your heads with me.